Alrighty, we are live. Welcome to the first edition of the podcast that doesn't yet have a name. We've had some name suggestions, but we don't exactly know what it's going to be. We have a special guest with us today. What do you, what do you, what do you reckon is the name? What's your, what's your gut feeling on the name? I'm tossing up between the, uh, could be the Dougal Cameron experience, mm. the Dougal factor. Uh, what was the other one? We had, um, we had a suggestion from uh, one Daniel Olsen who suggested that our name should be um, Pow, right in the kisser, <laughs> which I'm uh, open to and attracted to. But we have a special guest. What do you think about um, Two Blokes, One Podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I think it could work. Um, we might get zucked, though. <laughs> um, <laughs> but okay, we have a special guest. Let's get to the introduction. Um, Alex Cameron, first achievement is being my older brother. Uh, and then we'll run through his other achievements later. But before we do, let's get to the sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by My Style Suits, which is the dream, which has subsequently become a reality of two young boys from the West who wanted to make it in the big leagues. And we're in phase two of this operation. It has been set up. Check out mystylesuits.com if anyone needs a high-quality formal suit. Go check out My Style Suits, order online, straight to your door. Revolutionary system, which means we undercut the market price by about 50%. So go check out the website, even the Instagram. Um, and we will be talking a bit about that because those two boys who grew up in the West happen to be in front of a microphone right here. That's right. We have uh, the CEO over on the other side of the mic. That's and right. uh, on this side, we have the President Chairman of the Board of Executive Directors. It's exactly right. It's, it's it's a great title, but it's it's just great to be here in general. Um, look, it, you're exactly right. We did we started off two young guys just wanting to make it in the in the big smoke in the big city. If we're going to be honest, um, yeah. Let's talk about my style suits. What happened? How did we start it? It's a real business now. I've registered it. Got the website. Advertising's going. ABN tax file. You're talking the works. The whole business. Um, tell how did how did we start it? Well, basically, um, as we'll talk about a little bit later in the program, um, big man, the DC Meister, the, Ak- the DC to the Akadaka over there, um, found that he could <laughs> found a little uh, niche over there in China and was able to get us some super high quality, I'm talking the best quality um, you've ever felt in your life. Once you try it on, you won't want to take it off. Um, really good, unbelievable you quality. You want to sleep in it. Um, everyone wants to be sleeping in it. Um, Unbelievable quality suits, just nice fabric, nice fit. But more than that, it was we found out as young men, kind of going through kind of these formal and formal situations, um, there was nowhere to rent a really good quality suit at an affordable price. It was either you shell out, you know, minimum two hundred fifty bucks for your own suit, and if you're sixteen years old, you know you're going to grow out of it in about six months. Um, totally just blitz your parents. Um, their credit cards um, or, 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 or you rent something that's absolute garbage um, so we thought well we're going to help these guys out here and we started a business so basically unbelievable quality suits super af- affordable prices um, if it suits me it suits you pretty much suit first ask questions later that's exactly right is what we like to say and so how's the business uh going now everything's up and running look it's all up and running mate we've got the websites looking beautiful um delivery system on the move um really we're just you know dotting the i's and crossing the t's at the moment um so really what, was, ramping um, up. what was your motivation for actually doing a business starting a business oh well look mate i've always wanted to start a business um grandfather started a business my father started businesses um Basically, we wanted to, I guess both of us really just wanted to, you know, contribute more than anything to start something. Um, it's, the, the, look, obviously a, a side benefit is, is making money, but once you find something that actually helps people and, you know, is net positive, it, you, you never work a day in your life. Yeah, I wanted to um, <clears throat> make some money before I got... The, the wife and kids and the mortgage. I just thought oh, you'd yeah. have a crack while we were at university. Oh, yeah. got a bit of time. You have to these days. To spend. You have um, to these days. Sydney house prices are unbelievable. Going down, though. 
Going down. Are they? Yeah, the they go, they're, they're, yeah, yeah, they're deflating, deflating. Everyone, you know, you talk to any bloke in an Uber or a taxi, they go, house prices are unbelievable, you know. Well, that's no, it's good. They, Property's that's, always a good investment. That's if you what bought, they tell you after they pitch the pyramid scheme to you. Yeah, i tell you what, if they've, um, if you bought eight months ago, you'd be looking at a pretty substantial loss uh, today, but, you know, that's just swings and roundabouts of the market. Yeah. So you're at university, almost finished. That's right, mate. Almost finished a commerce degree. Yeah. How's that helped with um, with actually something in real world? Uh, Buckley's, mate. Absolute Buckley's. Sweet FA. Uh, you, you learn more in 20 minutes starting a business than you do in... in, in I, did, I, I think I did two introductory, mandatory introductory courses on running a business or business ethics or something like that. Um, within the first two semesters, including like corporate social responsibility, all that type of stuff, from a tutor who was a year older than me, who had never started a business in their life. And I thought, this is a bit odd. It's a bit strange. Um, and they were taking from a textbook, again, from a guy who'd never started his own business. Look, it's one of those things, it, it, if you really want to start a business or learn about a business, you just got to go out and do it and work. That's the only way to do it. Mm. Um, now, as I understand it, you're currently... Here, obviously, in Australia, but that's not where you're based. Is that right? That is correct. Glad you knew that. We, um, I'm in a bit of a lucky special position where I've got... Um, I'm on a five-year program. I've finished one of those years out of Shanghai. Uh, the first two years of preparation, just uh, Chinese and maths, and the last three years are economics in Chinese. But it's funny. I'll tell you what, the Chinese, the Chinese maths that I have to do, which is just finishing high school level mathematics in China is what my buddies from America are studying in their mathematics minors at university. That's crazy. I think two or three years ahead in terms of numeracy just because they, like from who I've talked to, um, the year 12 kind of HSC regime for a Chinese student is you get to school at seven in the morning. Then you leave at eight at night and you have two more hours of homework to go. Um, and it's it means that by the time they're 15 i think there was a report came out a couple of years ago that by the time an australian kid and a chinese kid are both 15 in terms of definitely numeracy but i think also literacy the chinese kid is two years ahead um i think it was it could have been close could have been three um now there's an argument to say they're a few years behind in social ability Mm. um but nonetheless in terms of hard skills but that being said considering um how australia is going socially (laughs) <laughs> There's an argument to say we've we've gone backwards. Mm-hmm. Well, that is um, something pretty funny. I mean, there's um, you talk to the Chinese people who kind of support the big one-party Chinese government, yeah, and they say, well, why don't you have a Western liberal democracy? And they say, well, you've had like five prime ministers in the last six years, yeah. and we've just been lifting pe- hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, um, and our government actually has a mandate to do something. Mm. Not that I necessarily agree with the argument, but democracy is having a pretty tough time in Australia, to say the least. It's an interesting. It's an interesting case study, China, isn't it? Mm. Um, being able to do what they've done, even though you know they obviously they opened the up to the capital markets. Yeah. The most underreported story in like the last thirty years is the lifting of like I think probably eight hundred million, million people Chinese out of, people out of, out of poverty. poverty or something. The average Chinese yearly wage went from. Like in twenty or thirty years, went from two hundred American dollars to nine thousand American dollars. It's, un- it's an unbelievable increase, and and uh, the the way they did it was not through taxing people. It was That's through what they, opening yeah. up markets, creating special economic zones. Um, exactly right. Basically, allowing Chinese people to fix their own problems, um, instead of the idea of creating a utopia where we're going to fix all your problems for you and you're going to like it. Yeah, it is. It is. Probably the largest and most influential case study on exactly why communism doesn't really work and why capitalism is just puts the rocket engines on the sides of an economy so it can really boost people out of poverty. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Chinese would still say they're communist and they have some pretty full... Um, they have a pretty strong government in a range of areas. Pretty intrusive yeah, 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 government. But I, think we should, I think we should also separate the idea. Um, they may still be communist, but they're not so much... Um, socialist in terms of 
the actual economics of it. Redistribution of wealth. Yeah, the stuff. redistribution of wealth. They may still, you know, the one-party state, all that type of stuff is fairly, is a kind of communist thing. But in terms of the actual access to the free markets, you have guys over there who are going from nothing to billionaires. And you just can't do that when it's a t- it's just absolute socialism. Mm. Um, yeah, well, there's definitely, um, well, we give credit to Deng Xiaoping. Yep. He's um, a shout out man to Deng. like. Deng gets uh, first. Deng gets the first shout out the fir- the first. on the podcast. This is one of our. We're going to have a. We have. We don't know what the segment's going to be called, or we don't know what the award yet's going to be called. It's at this point, it's just called shout outs to people who we feel like have done good things. And Deng gets the first shout out of. He's the, done some good things. Podcast. Yeah. I mean, you, you contribute to lifting eight hundred million people out of poverty. That's more than uh, the UN will, will ever do mm-hmm. by a factor of about a million. <laughs> It's not even close. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's hard. It's hard. With big and they got these mandates. They got these done. UN mandates, and it's like on that fifteen-point plan. You know, this fifteen-point plan or whatever it is, and one of them is like end poverty. Yeah. So well, you guys do more have, to contribute to poverty I mean, well, than it. We are. I think the statistic I read said that we're gonna world poverty is gonna be finished by twenty thirty at the rate we're lifting. But that's just mainly coming out of China. It's not as much coming out of Africa. But let's although also the, although let's, the biggest, the fastest growing economies, I think, are in Northern Africa, and I have like uh, a, yeah, so I like think it's Botswana and, and Ethiopia, um, I think Ethiopia, well. those type, of, and you know exactly how they've done it. They've opened up the capital markets. But what I wanted to say just quickly on that point is, people often talk about uh, about lifting out of poverty and, and poverty. Um, econ- uh, economists and statisticians in, at the government level continually change the definition of poverty. They change mm-hmm. it every year. Yeah, um, and you say you, they talk about people below the poverty line. If anyone ever hears that statistic from someone, ask that person what is the definition of poverty because I guarantee you won't be the same as five years ago, and it won't be the same as ten years ago. Same with household income, same with household median income. They change the definition of what's in a household, and all of a sudden the the, the stats are skewed. Yeah. Well, one other thing to think about is in Australia, for instance, there's essentially no absolute poverty. They say there's, there's two none. different types of poverty. There's absolute poverty and relative, and relative. Poverty. That's, poverty. And that's what we're talking about. So yeah. people talk about reducing poverty. Well, there's no absolute poverty in Australia. There's no less than $2 a day uh, in Australia. Um, and you talk about relative poverty. Well, there's relative poverty is always going to exist because I think it's defined by like being in the bottom, could be 20, but might be less percent of the population. Yeah. Um, and look, relative poverty is like, actually, it is a problem because... Um, and I don't know it's one that has has a solution because uh, if you look at crime statistics is what Jordan Peterson talks about it's not true that poor people com- that, that crime is committed by economic hardship that crime is created by economic hardship um, because not all the poor not all poor people in commit countries crimes. commit right. crimes yeah. right? you have some countries everyone's poor and it's not like everyone's committing crimes right. But still in countries like Australia, it's like relative poverty. If you live in relative poverty, you have a much higher chance of committing crimes. And it's an interesting psychological thing to talk about. I don't sure. know really what it what it is, but there's just definitely a big distinction between um, relative poverty yeah, absolutely. and absolute. Absolutely. And I think the main uh, definition that's used for absolute poverty is two, two US dollars a day adjusted for inflation. I think so, yeah. I think that's it. Um I mean, there's a, there's a saying that goes around um, by economists is, you know, people who live below the po- poverty line um, in America would be in the upper middle class in Mexico. Yeah. Um, so, again, it's just one of those things where it's... Um, yeah. And this is something, um, if we want to talk about equality and inequality, one of the people I'd, who's um, one of my, the people who I really respect intellectually is a guy called Euron, Euron, Euron Brooks. Yeah, I like Euron. I like Euron on almost he, everything. He wrote a book called Equality is Unfair. And basically the premise of the book is that um, fairness uh, should not be defined as everyone gets equal. Fairness should be defined as you get what you deserve. Yeah. Um, so he says that um, the rewards you get should be um, in proportion to the contributions you make interesting argument um but um he will say for instance if you make a comparison between um if we talk about poor people in australia or poor people in um america or poor people in south korea for instance then you say well, we should have more socialized uh a more socialist economy uh, with more government redistribution he'll say well let's have a look at the countries that have 
more redistribution. Um, and while it's true that in those countries everybody has a more equal income because people are more equally poor, um, it's it's also true that poor people in America or poor people in Australia or poor people in South Korea are way better off than the poor people in North Korea and the poor people in um, you know African countries or underdeveloped Asian countries. Mm. Like you just have a much better time being poor in a in a Western liberal capitalist society than you do in a different society and. One of the reasons you one of the ways you can actually tell is, by the way, when um, you had Chairman Mao who was running China, just the amount of people who were flocking to Hong Kong, mm. um, people just could not get in fast enough into Hong Kong. Yeah. Um, just because they would much rather be in a system which had a, less of like a social net sure. in finger marks. Yeah. Um, because they had opportunities to rise up and and it, anyway. That's that's my two cents on it. Oh no, a hundred percent. And I'll just say quickly, um, I really like you, Ron Brook. Um, the what, the point that kind of really resonates for me with with your Ron Brook, no, your Ron Brook, um, is he makes a point. He says for 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 a kind of against why the government should be able to control healthcare and education. He says he holds up his iPhone and he goes, "Can you imagine what this would look like if the government built it?" Mm. Right. And, and, and it just if a government committee if a government committee tried to organize and, and make an iPhone because they've got no economic incentive really they mm. get paid salary whatever um, mm. to make a really beautiful functional iPhone um, so he says then why if you don't trust them to make an iPhone why would you trust them with your healthcare and your education that's mm. a, for me that's the most powerful point that he makes um, and I think he's, he's absolutely right the, the idea when you take away the economic incentive um, for a business to produce something both aesthetic and functional, everyone is absolutely worse off, number one. Number two, it, it, w- w- if you keep the economic incentive there, on the basis that everyone wants to make money, the quality of the of the production is only going to increase. And we've seen that over the past 20 years in terms of computers, in terms of phones, um, the processing power, the storage capabilities even cars, all that type of stuff. Everything, everywhere you look where there's an economic incentive to maintain a market share or to improve, you see a better quality product than you did 100 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago. Yeah, I think, um, I think most people would actually agree with you. I think, the, I think most people's general outlook would be the market should do what the market does best and the government, government should do what the government does best. But there's a dispute in the middle ground of where, where the division is between those two things. What the government actually is like, does best, in terms of education, in terms of um, healthcare, are two primary ones, obviously. Mm. Um, and there's there's also a range of places where it's pretty hard to see a market incentive for doing things, which a lot of people would consider good. Give me an example. Well, it's pretty hard to see um, how you would benefit from, in a good way, from having private militaries. There are already private militaries. Sure, they're already like private security. Um, Let's say it's a private military. What's the guy, um, guy in America? What's it called Black Black Rock Security or something like that? Sure, but let's say let's say the American Army was privatized. How do you think that would go? The American Army is already. There's, I mean, if you look at, there's a good argument in the Iraq War and a lot of going into the Middle East was created because of of market incentives of companies who wanted to build heaps of weapons. And so the governments gave them contracts, and they got donations from those, you know, from right. those big companies. Right. And then everyone, everyone won except, you know, the one or two million Middle Eastern civilians who got gunned down in, in the thick of it. Are you, do, are you talking about post nine eleven? Yeah, sure. Well, look, what, what I'll say is this: um, the decision to go in to Iraq. Like I, when I when I went to Q and A when I went to I, I went to Q and A a couple of months ago in a Q and A one night being a good informed Australian being, citizen yeah, doing an honest audit of taxpayer funds, um, I went there and someone uh, one of the panelists mentioned George W Bush, mm. um, and I think WMDs right and of course everyone knows it like they didn't find any whatever okay, um, this has to be a pretty large scale kind of conspiracy collusion allegation that they're making because on the basis of the evidence bush was told i think by 17 of the highest ranking intelligence officials in the u.s 
that Saddam had WMDs. Yeah. He, he, he was he was under, now obviously there was side benefits. For everyone. I'm just saying. Now my argument is not my argument is not necessarily that I would have acted differently to George W. Bush. My argument is that there's it seems like there's a corporate incentive in the military which is making it worse than it would be if it didn't have it. Right? Because you have those top guys in the CIA and the FBI who are making these calls, giving out these big contracts to, um, you know, weapons construction like companies. Yeah. And, um, Lockheed Martin. Lockheed Martin. And then the people who lose out are the people who, who die from, from them. They're not the, you know, Americans don't lose out okay. in that per se. So, so ergo, private military but I think that's like an interest like I'd have no, but I agree with you I, well, like, we, I have a lot less trust in the CIA and FBI than sure um, I mean you have a look at the, they're Julian Assange you can have we can talk about Julian Assange one of the other things we can talk about is um, the Gulf of Tonkin incident which was the justification for, for America US going entering to Vietnam into the, yeah 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 and it was totally fabricated that US warships were attacked by Vietnamese ships um, even though that was the excuse used by uh, America to go into Vietnam and there was obviously a whole lot of people who died in Vietnam unnecessarily it seems I don't even know why America went into Vietnam if they were scared of communism like what are they scared of if they really believed that capitalism would have won like they spent so much money there surely the money would have been better spent inside the American and Western economies and demonstrating how much better they functioned and if the Vietnamese people yeah, chose but that, that, that argument can be used across any time anyone declares war on anyone but what I'm Wait, saying, so you're that saying that seem, if they if they spent it internally on the U.S. economy and demonstrated how well the the capitalist economy works anyway, that the Vietnamese would have just turned to capitalism anyway. Sure. Well, I'm saying that it's an unnecessary war, and I'm saying it it would have been a much stronger point to just demonstrate organically that we had a better system than the communists yeah. did, instead of saying you're gonna you're gonna take a capitalist system or else you get you're gonna get napalmed. That's what I'd say. I think, and I mean, look, I, I get you. I, I see. I see. In terms of the broad point, right, which is the idea, essentially, that that the the military shouldn't be privatized. Ah, look, I agree with you. I agree because obviously, that the first job of of a government is essentially to protect the borders, right? Mm-hmm. To protect its the the sovereignty of the land uh, mm-hmm. of the nation, right? And obviously, to do that, you need a military. So the military should be under government control. Um, and the idea, of course, that a military could be privatised is obviously a scary one, and it's kind of to the whim to the highest buyer, whatever. Um, and I agree with you in terms of the Vietnam, the specifics of the Vietnam. Well, it was a domino theory that if Vietnam fell, more Southeast Asian yeah, countries yeah, yeah, fall. Yeah, they were just going to run. I'm all saying the way if they fall, Asia, if yeah. they if they fall, and you think that. Like practically and theoretically, the communist economic system has is is deficient. Instead of going in and killing a bunch of civilians, you should wait for that system to fail and then offer them an alternative peacefully. Okay, well, I think the counter to that would be that we've seen the aftermarks of communism anyway. That mm-hmm. you wouldn't even have to state like every time there's a proper communist society, we talk about um, obviously China, Russia. Those are the two mm-hmm. main ones. Um, you, you you look at them. You don't you don't have to invade. Mm. They destroy themselves, and the descent into chaos and anarchy and just total destitute poverty is so rapid that you don't even have to invade. Right? You don't even have to. This is what I'm, this is what I'm saying. You, let's just say you, you wait it out, type of thing. You wait it out. Well, how long did it take for the USSR to wait it, wait it out? What about China? So, well, I'm saying, yeah, I don't think America gets to be the world police on everything. I think I they think, have to be, to an extent. No, because I think, like, um, if you... I th- Like, this is one of the reasons why I'm so pro-free speech, is just the fact that even when you think you're right, there's still a chance that you're wrong. Of course, of course, right? of course. So, we're pretty sure that even... America thought they were right in the Middle East, turns yeah. out they were wrong. Um, I, I feel like... Um, you know, if the Vietnamese felt like capitalism failed, then there's no... I mean, you look at China, right? China had, like, a couple centuries of very tough luck where they were... Um, up until, like, I think the 17th or 18th century, they'd been, for century upon century, the world's most developed no, civilization it was, it was in the world. it was even earlier than that. It was... It was um, 
pretty much around the same time you had um, Magellan Vasco da Gama that they in decided to, yeah yeah that they no, decided no, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, think, yeah 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 no. yeah then they decided that it was 16th century 17th century yeah 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 well sometime anyway then they got into like an opium war against um, Britain then they got smashed by the Japanese in consecutive two world wars um you'd have to be I mean if you were the Chinese you'd probably be naturally sceptical of Britain and um, you know Japan after World War Two. the isolationist policy was their call China sure that was I'm just saying, a change of but I'm saying naturally you would be sceptical of Britain saying hey come and adopt our system and they've just been smashed by Britain I'm not saying it's the right decision but I'm saying you can definitely understand it what I'm thinking, though, is, okay, so let's just say um, the U.S. has no incentive to be the world police, mm-hmm. right? So the idea behind being the world police would be that they're engaging in, a, in conduct that is for the betterment of the world. Well, how right? do you define the betterment of the world? Well, the reason why they have to be the police is so that they can put the bad mm-hmm. guys away and the good guys in, right? So how net do you make, good. Yeah. Right? This, you, what, this but, is what I'm saying. This is what I'm saying. But how do you define net good? Okay, well, th- this is what I'm saying. It's broad, but you're saying that would be the principle, Right. I'm saying you can't have a principle without the definition. Because, I mean, North Korea can say we're going to be the world police and we're going to be for net good, and their net good is going to be different to America's net good, so nobody can actually understand what anything means. So nothing, but, 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 but by that thing, then nothing is good, nothing is bad. No, you can make... I'm just saying that if America wants to be the world police, they have to have a definition of what is good and we can discuss whether okay, that's okay, correct. Okay, but, 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 but by that same thing, then if, if we're to say that then... Um, they can't decide on their own thing that, on what is good and they don't actually know what good is, then there's no reason for them to intervene in foreign countries and provide charity, provide aid. Well, if it's consensual and both people consent to it, then it's good because we can trust each people to act in their own self-betterment. But I'm saying it's pretty tough to give one, one actor uh, the responsibility to act in everyone else's net good interest if other people don't consent to it. So, like, we can say, for instance, in one in one sense, it might be a net good to wrap a child in bu- bubble wrap and make sure they never cross a road and, and never get any disease or never roll around in dirt, never get exposed to any bacteria. We can say maybe that's net good. But then someone else says, well, no, that's not a net good. And so I think there are real discussions that would be had about what does a net good mean, particularly when, you know, you roll out the tanks. I think that's something you actually need sure, to clear up sure. first. Yeah. Um, and I also think that even if you feel like your net good is probably correct and maybe other people are making some mistakes, it doesn't mean, even if it's relatively provable, I, I also don't think it's your responsibility if you have superior military capabilities to go and force them not to make what you perceive as a mistake because you might be wrong. Well, then, is there any possible justification for... So, there's no possible justification for entering a country without the consent of... What, what, what if you have the consent of the, of the people but not the consent of the government? Yeah, well, it's a good question. I think you can definitely... Like, I don't know all the answers. I'm just throwing sure, out talking sure. points. I mean, I wouldn't... Like, I think if there's wars, like, you can definitely arm your side of the team, probably. Like, you can definitely... If you had a civil war in Syria, like we should probably arm Assad because we feel like Assad is better than ISIS and we have a net good and our net good is, you know, we don't throw gay people off buildings. Like that's a bottom bottom level net good. And if Assad doesn't do that, but ISIS does it, we can say, all right, well, what the, but, uh, but at, what, like what, at what point though do you infringe upon the right for, for a nation to govern itself? <clears throat> well, it's a hard question. I don't think anyone knows the answer to it. But I think the answer has to be pretty far, like, down the line because it seems like after World War Two, we've done a whole lot of um, interventions that probably shouldn't have been interventions I mean one of the reasons I'm actually sympathetic to the interventionist cause a little bit is because in both World War One and World War Two, America got heavily heavily criticised for not entering in earlier against Kaiser Wilhelm in World War oh, 100% yeah. when they had um, was it the Polish atrocity stories or no the Belgian atrocity uh, stories and then they were criticised for not going earlier against the Nazis and then, um, you know, everyone was appealing to them, don't you have a heart, you know, come into the war and fight these bad Germans. Yeah. And then in Korea and then Vietnam and then in in the Middle East and, and what have you, they get criticised because they went in prematurely. So there is like, it's obviously a tough question and I don't think many people have the answer, but I think 
going to war should be like absolutely last resort unequivocal evidence that what someone's doing is bad and that's one of the interesting things that's why Jordan Peterson said talks about Alexander Solzhenitsyn yeah if anyone wants to read that book it's a great book it's called The Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn who's a survivor of the gulags in the Soviet Union and um, what Solzhenitsyn says is that the Nuremberg trials of 1945 were the most significant events of of the 20th century because although it's hard for people like us when we're sitting here to decide on what's good it's it it's maybe an easier time to decide it's maybe an easier ways to agree on what's bad and then work towards the opposites of what's bad so what they did in in nuremberg was the judges came to a decision that although the german people who they captured who were led by um who's the who's the guy who's in the head of the um the luftwaffe goering so like goering and, and the boys all said that they were just following orders and that's what everyone was doing if you the british you were just following orders when you killed us and we were just following orders what they said at nuremberg was that there's actually no excuse whatsoever for gassing people in a gas chamber sure. and that applies across international law it applies across cultures it applies applies across any boundaries whatsoever and so then what we can do is as i hate to use this term because it's it's almost always used in a bad way as citizens of the world is we say well if that's bad let's work towards what's good in a sense so there's like so once you find an, 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 an opposite, you can work yeah. you work backwards. Yeah. So to what's good, right? Yeah. And so if you say the definition of backwards is just exterminating people in <coughs> in gas chambers, yeah. then you can maybe start to work things out a bit a bit more clearly with definitions and stuff because definitions are important in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think definitely definitions are are important in terms of. Um, how you actually gonna, how you actually formulate a plan as to whether or not? Well, I think the fundamental definition has to be good and what is true. Those two, uh, whether or not they're separate or not, is obviously up for. I think d- sometimes they might be separate. So, for example, if I if I fail a test, yeah, and then um, one of the reasons I didn't really do well in class was because the teacher didn't like me. Let's say we take that as as yeah. a truth. And say so the teacher didn't like me in class, that's why I did poorly. Now, the teacher who said, um, who didn't like you, was obviously a factor in, in your, your, mark. Your, your mark, right? There was a factor in your mark. But I would argue that it's actually not good to believe that. It's actually um, better to believe something that was probably less true because it was more constructive for your life. So even if your teacher didn't like you, if you were to say, well, the reason why I failed or why I got a bad mark... Because of my lack of preparation. Because of my lack of preparation. Because 100% my responsibility. i got to own up to it and i got to get better for next time, regardless of what the teacher's, the, the teacher's situation was. If you take 100% responsibility for that, I would argue that's a better way to do things, although it might be less truthful. Do you think it's possible to come to that conclusion whilst knowing the full truth? I mean, potentially. Potentially, but I, think, I don't think I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I don't think if you found out that the teacher was for somehow to blame, um, that that still wouldn't stop you from coming to the conclusion. Although it may inhibit it, um, it's I don't think it would still um, would prevent you from coming to the conclusion that in the future you still need to prepare better. I think if you, I think if you take the position that if that basically all your life is your responsibility and there's no ifs or buts and that all your current outcomes are just a product of all your previous decisions, even if that has elements which aren't 100% true, I think that'll be a much more constructive thing for your I life than, so. than saying, well, this, this hardship was someone else's fault, this hardship was someone else's fault, this hardship was someone else's well, fault. Well, but, but that wasn't the truth. That wasn't the whole truth. Sure. Already. Sure it wasn't the whole already, truth. Already. But then, but then but let's, just, let's, people, take your, let's take your argument, though, to its logical extension, which is essentially the selective or um, what... It, the, the, uh, ideally, what you're saying is that um, you can get to exactly where you want to go to without knowing exactly where you are. What do you mean? Well, you're saying... So, to get where you want to go, right? Yeah. 
on a map, you have to know exactly where you are. Well, I'm saying you can know exactly where you are, but you choose to believe a different narrative. Well, can you choose to truly believe something? Yeah. I mean, like, if you're a CEO of a company, you take 100% responsibility for whatever sure. happens in the company. Sure. Now, 99% of the operations in the company aren't actually the responsibility of you. They're the responsibility of other people. But nonetheless, you have to take all the responsibility for everything that happens. Why? Well, because that leads to better outcomes. Because that's what leads to better outcomes for the company, right? So I'm my saying is my feeling in in a utilitarian terms is that you just get better outcomes in terms of prosperity and happiness if you sometimes choose to believe things that are slightly less truthful. Then, okay, but what what if I said this? To you? What if I said this to you? If you 100% believe that that outcome with the teacher was because it was your fault only, right? Yeah. If you kept, if you knew that the teacher was trying to undercut you or whatever, and you chose to stay in that class, and you had an option to move out of a class and go to a different class, but yet you continually stayed in that class, mm. are you better off than if you moved? Probably not. Probably not. So That's is that good? Point. That's your point. I'm yeah. not saying I'm right. I'm no, just saying I'm, I'm saying I'm saying to you. I think the truth, absolute truth, is absolutely perfect and absolutely good. I don't think you can separate good from truth ever. You don't think so? No, never. Because the point at which you say you can separate good from truth, there's no actual limit to the extent to which you can do that. Well, what if you... Because you can say, I can be 1% true, 99% false, and still be in a better position than I was than if I said it was 100% true. Well, what if you could... Yeah, sure, I think there's problems with both. I don't think either one is perfect. No. But I do think that it's like... (laughs) That if there's one thing that probably the 20th century taught us is that there's a like do not underestimate the powers of governments to do bad things well that's exactly why um the second amendment um in here we go get stuck in in the u.s is absolutely so crucial Mm. hold on keep going explain that point out i'm gonna get two more beers yeah go get two more beers keep no keep explaining it why is it so crucial well because there's been a whole lot of the, the, the Second Amendment. People get people get confused, I think. Um, the Second Amendment in the US, the right to bear arms, is not is not the idea that you and you you and the boys can go and shoot up a whole bunch of people you don't like. Right? That's not the idea behind it. That's not what the founding fathers thought. We're just gonna arm the fellas with a whole bunch of muskets um, and, and bayonets and see what they can go do, you know, with the big boss hogs. That type of thing. That's not the idea behind it. The idea behind it, and why why it's even more relevant today than it would be in any other circumstance, in my opinion. I know it's an unpopular opinion, but the idea behind the right to bear arms is so that in the case where a government attacks its own people, the people have a right to have a way to defend themselves. That's the idea, and 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 that's when, when when people come out and say, well. You know, the Second Amendment was created when it takes 60 seconds to unload and reload a firearm, right? That's one of their favorite ideas, right? The idea, well, now we've got semi-automatic and automatic weapons um, that kind of the Second Amendment should be nullified, right? should be made to be zip. That's not the idea behind it. It's, it's actually a founding principle is the idea is that the founding fathers knew the capacity of the human being when given extreme amounts of power over, uh, over people to turn against them. To, to carry out their own yeah. wills. Well, the most convincing example I found was given by Shapiro, and it's exactly he right. said um, he said a lot of the a lot of the Jews in Nazi Germany, when they were getting led to the platform and going on the trains, a lot of them knew exactly where they were going. Yeah. And he asked the question, how much harder would it have been to round six million of them up if they all put had them guns. on a train if they all had a gun? Yeah. Right. It'd be much harder to do it. Um, and that's that's that that's the argument that I like. Um, but it's still, there's still obviously a massive problem in school shootings, right? And that's obviously the main reason why gun, gun uh, crime and gun control gets talked about in America. Like, yeah. it's a big problem that people just go and shoot up a school. Oh, a hundred percent. What? Now there is an argument from the uh, Second Amendment fans who say um, that's an evil thing that someone goes yeah. and shoots up a school, and that's a bad thing. But it is a lesser evil um, than uh, submitting the ability to protect ourselves from a future from, from tyrannical a government. government. Yeah. Now the, I mean, it's hard because it's a hard, very hard argument to win because 
the um, well, not even to win. It's a hard argument to solve because the effects of having liberal gun laws are so clearly in front of the American people today. Like your defects are just so much more real. The, well, the, the, than, yeah, than, the like the idea of the idea of guns being bad are right in front of you, and the idea of tyrannical governments are fifty years behind you. Yeah, and it's very hard to make the idea, to, to make the idea have really short memories. Particularly, it could be it, yeah. that could be a thing that they should sure. be worried about. Absolutely, and and I mean the media plays on this, and the idea that your kid would go to school, even a kin, you know uh, like a kindergarten or something like that, and some guy with a gun comes in just starts shooting people mm. obviously that's you know that's something that frightens the crap out of and so it should right and, and that's a natural instinct but then the 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 question is where do you go from there right mm. that's the question um mental health checks um criminal history registration all that type of stuff with stuff that had to be looked at the problem is is that Particularly in America, because if we're going to talk about um, gun rights, obviously the, the the topic, the case and topic is America. Sure. Um, the question is, if you start amending the Constitution, there's kind of no ex- like to the extent of totally repealing a right to carry arms. That's a total repeal of um, the Second Amendment. Then there's kind of at that point people would say, well, there's absolutely no extent to which, on the basis of a couple of events or whatever it is, that you can't repeal, say, the First Amendment, mm-hmm. or um, the right to an attorney, or the right, the freedom of, of association, or the right to start your own church, stuff like that. There's no extent based on will you say, well, the precedent suggests that after a number of events um, of particular uh, severity, that you can't start repealing stuff in the constitution mm. like that's that's kind of the slippery slope argument mm. yeah there's definitely a slippery slope argument and i think one of them is like well let's say you give it's the government's uh role to decide who's mentally ill and who's not um and then uh who gets a gun who doesn't yeah and considering a lot of the um well i mean there'd be some pretty liberal definitions for racist and i wouldn't um, be surprised if racist would might get classed as mentally ill um, or something like that, but if you you start saying, "Well, you got background checks, you got this, you got that," and I think I think they're pretty much good things because I feel like people in government usually try and act in good interests, and people yeah. are usually good. But there's still obviously opportunities for things to go bad, and maybe it's only once a century that it happens. But it's in our interest to prevent to to reduce the collateral damage that that thing has. Now, there's also I'd love to give a bit of context to some of the gun issues in America. Sure. So, gun crime in America is obviously way high much higher than a country like Australia, which has less guns. Um, but non-gun violent crime is way down in America. Mm. So violent rapes, uh, armed robberies, um, break and enters, all way down because everyone feels like that the person they might, that they're trying to bash up or rape or yeah. steal from might have a gun. Is is. Um, packing a piece you know he's about to give you the they've got a Glock in the pants he's got a Glock, Glock in the pound of the pillow <laughs> yeah. grandma's got a 22 under, yeah. the, under the bed so those crimes are way down and it's also very hard to see like well how much crime every year does do guns prevent yeah that's you can't really measure that statistic can no. you no um, or uh, and so that's an interesting one to consider um when you're talking about gun violence. But I think one of the things like that's just very essential to conversations, which sometimes gets lost today, is it particularly like I see it a lot when you talk about um, when, when particularly Americans have conversation about gun violence, mm. people feel like, like people have convinced themselves that they're 100% correct. And that means that if you disagree with my 100% correct analysis which is defending the kids or defending my right to bear arms, yeah. that you are, in consequence, an evil person. Not a person who's wrong, not a person who's just had a mistake of logic or a mistake of thought and can't compute yeah. things correctly, but you're an evil person. And it's not just with the Second Amendment, but I think one of, one of the things that we need to try and remember is that there's not many people, I think, in the world who are actually evil, um, and I think just deciding that other people are evil is like an intellectual 
it's a it's fallacy. intellectually it's a lazy. Fallacy. It's, it's, it's lazy. Intellectually it's lazy. And, and, it's, and it's a fallacy. But it's also it's also dangerous because if you decide yep. that other people are not only wrong but they're evil, well, that gives you a range of that, that gives, that you, gives the right you a justification to do pretty much anything to, pretty to, much them. Anything to them, right? Yep. So you see, like in America, people saying that Donald Trump is literally a Nazi, right? If now, you believe, Donald yeah, Trump exactly. is if not believe, literally a Nazi. No, if you actually believe if, he's but, a Nazi, you would be you you. Right. So you if you saw, I mean, it, like, if you saw a guy going down the street with a Hitler flag and um, was preaching that we should exterminate the Jews, even though, even though I'd prefer you didn't punch him, I would understand if you did. Yeah. I'd sure. understand if you did, even though I'd prefer that you didn't. Right. Um, but then, will people say, okay, well, if we're allowed to punch Nazis and we just liberalise the definition of Nazis and throw it onto other people who we don't like? And that means we can go up and punch them, um, which has turned into going up and punching Trump supporters because they're apparently Nazis. It's totally well, that's dangerous. It's totally, it's totally so anarchy. I think the idea that people, the people who disagree with you are evil is a dangerous one sure. and one that basically never solves any problems ever. And I think it's one we should keep in mind that we should, we should try and like put ourselves in the other person's shoes in a sense, understand where they're coming from. Um, and I think you talk to every person like they they might know something you don't so even though like me and alex agree on a lot of things we're like kind of pro free markets smaller governments we have a few like maybe smaller disagreements i think there's a pretty good chance if i sat down with noam chomsky you'd probably be able to convince me out of all of those positions right because he's pretty knowledgeable guy i've watched a few videos of him and i think i've seen him as well i wasn't i wasn't maybe i I just wasn't i think like i think um there's some. There's obviously just going to be high levels of uh, analysis, in, uh, in, yeah. analysis and intellect of people who disagree with you. Yeah. And I think you should be open to it. I'm sure. open to being convinced by, by Chomsky. And I think like that's that's something everyone. I think that's just a generally a good thing to have. Um, you know, if you can make it work. When I finished school, the first two books I read when I graduated high school was. Um, the Morality of Capitalism and the Communist Manifesto. And in the introduction to The Morality of Capitalism, it says before you read this book, you should go and read The Communist Manifesto and Das Kapital. Read um, Gramsci, read some of the other Engels. prominent commu- Engels, yeah. read some of the other prominent communist writers, consider their arguments, allow yourself to be convinced by them if you feel like their arguments are convincing. And then come back to the morality of capitalism and then make a rational judgment over which ones sure. you decide. It wasn't the introduction to the morality of capitalism wasn't communism killed 200 million people you're evil if you believe it. It was let's actually have a discussion about what sure. what's real, what's not real, what's good and what's what's not good. Sure. I think um look obviously in, on this podcast we don't really like I I don't really want to get into kind of left versus right that type of mm. politics, but I think what's kind of happened is um Again, I don't really want to go into it, but I guess we're gonna to have to. Is here we go. The left has kind of constructed essentially what is a giant straw man, and they've kind of what they've done is. Um, right. Would you be able? I don't like just these kind of. Do you? Do you? Are you gonna? Can you give any examples of sure. who you're talking about on the left? Oh sure, sure, sure. Uh, maybe Don Lemon, uh, Rachel Maddow, those type of guys. Mm-hmm. Um, talk Chuck Schumer. We're talking Nancy Pelosi. Um, Guys like that, pretty much the Democrats, Hillary Clinton, even. Um, so, sure, just put mm-hmm. names on names. It, it's much easier to combat an issue if you turn it into something binary, um, in the way that the gun rights, the same way. It's essentially a straw man. If you, it, it, the 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 argument that is, if you believe so, a straw man for somebody for anybody who doesn't know what a straw man is, a straw man is the idea that you take what somebody else is saying, you turn it into something which is not, which is a straw man, and then you you take a big fucking stick and beat the shit out of the straw man which actually has no relevance to what the original thing it's, someone it's a, said it's, was it's a, a, I mean it's a topical it's a topical <laughs> thing but if you, if you say for instance if you believe in, in lower taxes right if you say lower taxes and then and then someone will say oh so you don't care about the poor yeah. it's like you started with that the Kathy Newman the, the Kathy Newman right so you started with something up here Kathy which Newman is, is a serial offender of creating straw man which is which is the reason you could not like taxes is you could have 50 reasons, right? Yeah. And none of them could include because you don't like poor people. But then to take that and then say, oh, lower taxes, I don't mm. like poor people. That's a straw bet, right? So it's much easier to, to combat, like a particularly an emotional issue, um, particularly like something like gun rights, particularly post 
an event like Sandy Hook or um, anything else that's any of the other school shootings is then here we go give us one minute Ali finish your point it's pretty much to construct a straw man and then beat the crap out of it so what, what I would say is just be conscious of that when you're listening to um, uh, commentators or the news or something like that is when they try and turn a complex issue and get because very rarely do you find an issue which is so simple can be so simplified into a yes or no very rarely does that happen particularly with emotional issues um, gun rights gay marriage the only one I can think of is like abortion maybe gay marriage as well yeah um, look it's much more complex than that and I think you should just be weary of it because people do it all the time yeah and I think yeah definitely I think the idea that you should take the other the way we're going to solve problems is not by um, kind of reinventing the opposition's argument and then like rebutting that but the way we'd fix problems is by taking understanding the best forms of the arguments on both sides and then weighing them up yeah it's like so if I sit down which I probably will and I hope to do with someone who totally disagrees with me I'm not going to be like, oh, so you're a communist and you, you, you you're pro killing two hundred million. You're pro killing two hundred million people. I mean, yeah. like, well, let's talk about like what are you actually saying and what's like. Let's take the best reasons for it. Anyway, we've just had some of our family members walk in, and I'm getting a poked out tongue from my. Are you six or seven now? Seven year old sister. So we're going to have to wrap this one up. Pleasure having you on, Alex. Thanks for having me. I really yeah, enjoyed my time. Really appreciate uh, you having me on. And just again, just a quick shout out to My Style Suits. Um, super, super high quality suits. Super cheap price. I'm talking 80 to $100 for one to two weeks. You won't find that anywhere else on the internet for such good quality suits. 100%. Go check it out. Um, free returns if you don't mm-hmm. like it. Just free returns. Okay. And the other thing, a little bit of housekeeping because this is one of our first ones. You know, things might be a little bit clunky. Any suggestions, any criticisms, always welcome. Also, name suggestions, uh, you know. True. Send them in. And if which, I'm, t- I'm tempted if to throw out Akadaka. Akadaka. <laughs> if you... Um, bit of thunderstruck. If you choose... If we, if we choose your name or you're in the uh, top few, we'll definitely give you a shout out. But um, hope you enjoyed it. If you stayed through to the end, you know, we, we don't really mind because we're doing this it, more for ourselves than for anyone else. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we hope you got some value out of it and uh, if you have any suggestions of if any people who disagree who who want to come on like let us know we want to hear from them Um, my basic rule is that if you're happy to talk to me I'm happy to talk to you Um, (laughs) so if that works then then it works and you guys make it happen so anyway we'll see you later this is uh, Alex and Dukes checking out we're going to have some dinner and have some quality family time Thanks for having us. So thanks for having us. Bye-bye. See you again shortly.